Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 72. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on May 22nd, 2022, in a secure, undisclosed location in Princeton, New Jersey, four blocks from a former capital of the United States. There will probably be an episode about that someday. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, defeat, and glory. Mostly, though, we are here to have some fun. We're more than a little late this week, but listeners with great attention to detail will remember that the original plan was to take the week off entirely. Between the chase for the legal tender and doing fun stuff, I've been bouncing around a lot. The week began visiting my beloved mother and brother in Charlottesville, proceeded to a couple of days of business meetings in New York, followed by three days at my college reunions, which in my case involved sitting up until all hours, catching up with friends, as the four expended bourbon bottles on the kitchen counter attest. Wednesday night, in the middle of all of that, I was able to attend a live recording of the Fifth Column podcast at the Village Underground in Greenwich Village. While waiting to get in, I had a nice chat with Nick Gillespie, the former editor of Reason Magazine, who had said nice things about the podcast on Twitter. He bent my ear on the importance of Roger Williams in our history, so now I have another book to read. I also had nice chats with Matt Welsh and Michael Moynihan, both of whom I have long admired, and any number of Ernest Fifth Column fans. For those of you who don't know the Fifth Column podcast, it's essentially a conversation of the news of the week and the usually inane media coverage thereof between three very learned guys who have great chemistry. It's not for political partisans, but if you are politically homeless, as I am, I recommend it. Unless, of course, you don't want to hear any bad words. There are bad words. I also had a very brief encounter this weekend with William Jordan, To his colleagues, he goes as Bill, if I remember correctly, a professor of medieval history at Princeton. My dad, who was also a medievalist, had known him well. So when we arrived at the door of the same restaurant at the same moment, I introduced myself as John Henneman's son. Professor Jordan seemed a little startled. My dad died 24 years ago, and none of us are getting any younger. But then smiled and told me that dad had written the first review of his first book, I was relieved to hear that the review was a good one. I suppose if you are an author, you never forget that particular first out of many in life. It is the spring of 1615. In Virginia, John and Rebecca Rolfe have a baby, Thomas, and John is busily breaking the Spanish monopoly on the tobacco trade. The French, English, and to a lesser extent the Dutch, are jostling for position on the eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada, north of New Jersey. The Dutch have trading outposts at the mouth of the Hudson and near Albany. John Smith, of Jamestown fame, explored the coast of the region in 1614. And while he was away from his ship, his captain, Thomas Hunt, would, much to Smith's annoyance and even legitimate outrage, 
kidnap 27 Indians and take them to Malaga, Spain to be sold into slavery. One of them would be a language savant named Tisquantum, known to most Americans as Squanto. In 1615, John Smith would make a second crossing, which ended in tears with Smith and French captivity for a few months. In 1616, Smith would publish an account of his voyages and a detailed map of the region, naming it New England. The French had set up settlements on Mount Desert Island, Maine, and Port Royal in New Brunswick, but in 1613 and 1614, you all know that Samuel Argyll sailed up the coast from Jamestown and displanted them. Samuel de Champlain's settlement in Quebec, more than 300 miles away as the super crow would fly and quite a bit farther by water, was comparatively speaking thriving. But in the spring of 1615, Champlain himself was in France. We last checked in with Champlain in 1610. He and his Algonquin-speaking allies along the St. Lawrence River had thrashed the Iroquois and Mohawks twice, once in the summer of 1609 at the site of today's Fort Ticonderoga, and again in 1610 farther north, where the Iroquois River flows into the St. Lawrence. Those victories would effectively establish peace between the Mohawks and the trading tribes of the St. Lawrence Valley for 20 years. Champlain had spent the intervening years going back and forth between France and New France. In the spring of 1610, while Champlain was campaigning against the Mohawks, a Catholic fanatic assassinated the great King Henry IV. In David Hackett Fisher's words, the killer was a schoolmaster named Ravaillac, a religious fanatic, an academic who had been crazed with rage against the king's edicts of toleration and was consumed with fury and the frustration of a failed career. Violent craze losers are not an altogether recent thing. Henry, you will recall, had long been Champlain's most important patron. His small son, Louis XIII, would be king. But since he was only nine, his mother, the surpassingly beautiful and very Italian Queen Marie de' Medici, would effectively rule France as queen regent. It would turn out that she wasn't even remotely interested in new France, and this would be a problem for Champlain and his partners. The queen regent would not give Champlain an audience, so he had to devote a great deal of time in these years rebuilding support for new France indirectly, enlisting help from important nobles who did have the queen regent's ear. Fisher details all of this in Champlain's Dream, which I again highly recommend. Champlain did get back to Quebec almost annually during this period. In the summer of 1613, he explored far up the Ottawa River to the eastern edge of Huronia, the region occupied by the Huron tribes, who extended their authority west all the way to the Great Lakes. Along the way, by his own account, Champlain lost the small astrolabe that he carried to measure latitude at noon. Amazingly, Champlain's route was confirmed in 1867, the year of Canadian Confederation, when a farm boy found the astrolabe, still intact and attached to a rusty chain. By 1615, Champlain's deft politicking had reestablished royal support for New France, so he headed back to Quebec in the spring. He had raised enough money to charter the Saint-Étienne, a large ship of 350 tons. 
Once again, his captain was Champlain's old friend, Francois, Sir de Pongreve, whom longstanding and attentive listeners will well remember. The Saint-Étienne had the usual modular shallops in her hold, and they also brought along several larger mid-sized shallow draft barks. It's not clear whether they were carried on the ship's deck or towed along or sailed independently. They sailed on April 24, 1615, and reached Tadoussac on the St. Lawrence River by May 25th. Tadoussac was the most upriver deep-water anchorage on the St. Lawrence then. Since the last 10 days or so must have been fighting against the current of the St. Lawrence, the ocean crossing itself wouldn't have taken more than 20 days. Fisher pays tribute to their seamanship, quote, Between the two of them, Pontgrave and Champlain had made more than 50 crossings of the North Atlantic, and they never lost a large ship at sea. A lucky voyage was one thing. A long run of lucky voyages was quite another, and it had deep meaning for men who went down to the sea in ships. With every voyage, Champlain was gaining a reputation as a fortunate commander. Seafaring men are superstitious in that way. They know what a rogue wave can do, or a white squall that could strike without warning and blow a ship as big as the Saint-Étienne on her beam end. On arrival at the deep riverside harbor at Tadoussac, they immediately began assembling the shallops, and by May 27th, only two days later, the first boats were ready to go. Champlain and some accompanying friars from the Recollet order sailed for Quebec, arriving on June 2nd. The settlement was in better order than Champlain expected it to be, and the friars said they were impressed. Nevertheless, the Always ambitious Champlain put the settlers to work building a house for the friars and a chapel in which they could hold services. Once these projects were underway, he continued upriver, which was southwest in direction of today's Montreal. Just below Montreal was an area of open meadows, which had become a meeting place for the tribes of the region, and now also for Europeans who came to trade. If available to you, it would be useful to Pause the podcast briefly and pop up a map app of the region to get a sense of the Ottawa River, which most Americans do not know as well as the St. Lawrence. Word of Champlain's arrival on the St. Lawrence had rushed ahead, for there at the gathering place was a crowd of Hurons from the west, Algonquins from along the river, and others. It soon became apparent that they had a specific purpose in mind. Iroquois from the south, this time from the Onondaga and Oneida nations in western New York, the Mohawks remained quiescent after their robust defeats in 1609 and 1610, were interdicting Huron and Algonquin fur trade routes along the upper St. Lawrence and the Ottawa River. The Huron and Algonquin leaders wanted Champlain's help against the western Iroquois. Champlain discussed the idea with Pancrave, and they agreed that, quote, it was very necessary to assist them, both to engage them the more to love us, and also to provide the means of furthering my enterprises and discoveries, which apparently would only be carried out with their help, and also because this would be to them a kind of pathway and preparation for coming to Christianity. Champlain and Pancrave reasonably imagined that another quick campaign against the Onondaga and Oneida would lead to peace in New France, as it had with a Mohawk five years before. Champlain explained through an interpreter that the French were game and 
that along the way, he wanted to explore their territory all the way to the, quote, Western Sea. Champlain said he had to go back down to Quebec to prepare and attend to matters and get some men, and he would return in four or five days. The Indian leaders agreed to assemble a fighting force of up to two and a half thousand warriors to invade western New York. Champlain and Pontgrave went back down to Quebec on June 28th, but on account of various ins and outs and what have you, Champlain was not able to sail upriver again until July 4th, reaching the meeting place a few days later. This being quite obviously more than four or five days, the Indians had left. He would eventually learn that they'd heard a rumor that he had been killed. They had departed the meeting place only a couple of days before, dispersing to their homes. Champlain being Champlain, he decided to explore without the promised help. He took his interpreter, one servant, the small group of French fighting men he had brought, and rounded up ten Indian paddlers in two big canoes. So began a remarkable journey. I'll post a map of it from Professor Fisher's book. Please buy the book through the link in the episode notes on the website so he doesn't get too irritated with me. If available to you, consider following on a map app. If you know you care about minute geographical details, which I assume you do, if you have listened to this podcast from the beginning. First an overview, and then we'll go to Fisher's description for the details. They would travel nearly 500 miles in only 23 days, describing a great loop to the northwest along the Ottawa River, portage over significant distances, and reach the shore of Lake Huron only 30 miles south of today's Sudbury, Ontario, at a longitude west of Toronto. From there, they paddled along the eastern shore of Lake Huron, came ashore in southeastern Georgian Bay, and worked their way by rivers and portages to the north shore of Lake Ontario, just west of today's Kingston. They paddled the shore of Lake Ontario, crossed into New York, and finally pulled their canoes into the woods in Henderson Bay, just 15 miles southwest of today's Watertown, New York. From there, it was a mere hop, skip, and a jump down Interstate 81 to today's Syracuse, which is roughly where the robustly fortified city of Onondaga was in 1615. Well, there are certain sections of New York, Major, that I wouldn't advise you to try to invade. But that skipped over a ton of cool stuff. So now that you have it in mind, sort of as an overview, we'll go to some excerpts from Fisher. Quote, For the first part of the journey, Champlain followed the line of his earlier travels in 1613 and 14. Then he detoured far to the north to keep clear of the western Iroquois and especially the Onondaga, whose war parties were much feared. Beyond Morrison Island, Champlain's party left the Ottawa River and entered, quote, an ill-favored region full of pines, birches, and a few oaks, very rocky, and in many places rather hilly. They were crossing the Laurentian Shield of Canada, which Champlain described as a wilderness being barren and uninhabited, full of rocks and mountains and not ten arpents of arable land. But even in this frightful and abandoned land, Champlain found an abundance of sorts, a grand quantity of blueberries, in such plenty that it is marvelous. Along the way, he met many Indian nations, talked with them, and encouraged alliances with the French. He visited again with the Morrison Island Algonquins, whom he knew well. 
In another poor region, he met a group called the Odagudaman. I'm sure I botched that pronunciation. Who lived by hunting, fishing, and harvesting a huge abundance of blueberries, which they dried and ate through the winter. Champlain portaged around several rapids to Lake Nipissing, where the nation of that name gave him a very kind reception. Then he went another 30 leagues to the French River and made his way to Lake Huron. Interjecting here, I had thought this made Champlain and his French companions the first Europeans to see Huron and perhaps any great lake. Then I dug in a bit to make sure. I will elaborate momentarily. Back to Fisher. He traveled 45 leagues along its shore, marveling at its size. He called it the Sweetwater Sea. It was a disappointment to him in that way. He was searching for salt water that promised a route to China. But he felt better when he caught lake trout that were four and a half feet long. The pike were of the same size, and the sturgeon reached as much as nine feet. A very large fish and marvelously good eating. From Lake Huron, Champlain crossed Georgian Bay and entered the country of Huronia. Measured against the vast distances of Canada, it appears very small on a map of this great nation, but Champlain explored it on foot and had a different impression. The whole country which I visited on foot extends for some 20 to 30 leagues, he wrote, and it is very fine. He reckoned that it had an area of 40 by 60 miles, roughly 2,400 square miles. Champlain calculated the latitude of Huronia at approximately 44 degrees, well south of the lower St. Lawrence Valley. Its growing season was long enough to produce abundant crops of corn, and he was impressed by the quality of its soil. This country is very fair and fertile, he wrote, and he took pleasure in traveling through it. Back to me. Champlain saw huge fields of maize, a crop that had traveled to Canada over the millennia from Mexico. The Huron people also produced squash, sunflowers, plums, apples, raspberries, strawberries, and nuts. They were the breadbasket of the region and traded their food to the tribes to the north and south. They wore deer hides and beaver pelts routinely, the material proceeds of their good fortune and skill in agriculture. On August 17, 1615, Champlain reached Cahagüe, a town of Three or maybe 6,000 people. Champlain says 6,000, but modern archaeologists estimate 3,000 people. Protected by a massive palisade. If your map is open, Cahagüe was just west of today's Aurelia, Ontario, on the shore of Lake Simcoe. The chief of the region was overjoyed to see Champlain, he being among those who had thought he was dead. It was quickly agreed that warriors would be assembled for an attack at the heart of the land of the Iroquois. Between four and five hundred warriors materialized, and Champlain had perhaps a dozen arquebusiers. The Huron and the Algonquin suggested that they contact the Susquehannock, who lived to the south of the Oneida and Onondaga, and enlist them to attack from the south, which would trap the enemy in a pincer. The Huron told Champlain that the Susquehannock were good fighters and would surely join the war but they could only be reached by taking a long detour around the country of the Seneca, the westernmost of New York's Iroquois tribes. The Huron decided to send a delegation of 12 warriors to recruit the Susquehannock. 
Champlain's trusty interpreter, the French youth Etienne Brulé, asked to go along, and it was agreed. Etienne Brulé was both remarkable and, unfortunately to us, somewhat mysterious to history. He had come to New France as a teenager, probably in 1608. From the Wikipedia entry, quote, In June 1610, Brulé told Champlain that he wished to go and live with the Algonquins and learn their language as well as better understand their customs and habits. Champlain made the arrangement to do so, and in return, the chief Araquay, an Algonquin leader who wintered his people near Huronia and was a great friend of Champlain, requested that Champlain take Savignon, a young Huron, with him to teach him the customs and habits of the French. Champlain instructed Brulé to learn the Huron language, explore the country, establish good relations with all First Nations, and report back in one year's time with all that he had learned. On June 13, 1611, Champlain returned to visit Brulé, who astonishingly had done all that Champlain had asked of him. Brulé was dressed as though he were one of the indigenous people and was extremely pleased with the way he was treated and all that he had learned. Champlain requested that Brulé continue to live among the indigenous people so he could fully master everything, and Brulé agreed. Long-standing listeners will see these young men as the new France parallels to Thomas Savage and Namentak. Unfortunately, we know far less about them than the Virginia emissaries. Anyway, although... Brulé left no account of his own. The bits and pieces that come down to us from third-party narratives, including Champlain's, suggest that young Etienne was the first European to gaze and perhaps paddle on the Great Lakes of North America, at least Huron, Ontario, and Erie, and probably superior if he got to Sault Ste. Marie as third-party accounts claim. On September 1st, the big group pushed off for the 40-day trip to Syracuse. Most of it was by canoe, through a long chain of lakes with short portages, known today as Cranberry, Balsam, Cameron, Sturgeon, Pigeon, Buckhorn, Deer, Clear, and Rice Lakes. They eventually reached the northeast shore of Lake Ontario. From there, they crossed into New York and paddled their canoes to Sackett's Harbor, just southwest of Watertown. They stashed their fleet of canoes in the deep woods, hiding them with great skill. They were in enemy country now, and the canoes were their only way back home. I have to say that it was only in writing this episode that I realized that canoe hiding could be a make-or-break skill. Now it was October 5th. The French and Indians marched south toward today's Syracuse, essentially along the route of Interstate 81. They were now in Iroquois country. Between the requirements of stealth, the Indians were now marching carefully and silently, and the numerous river crossings, the 40-mile journey took four days. Now we have an encounter that illustrates the problems that can arise among allies of such wildly different cultures. Quoting Fisher, in deep woods, the scouts surprised a small Onondaga party of three men, four women, and four children who were going to catch fish. They were taken prisoner and brought to the main body. An Algonquin warrior of the Petite Nation ran up, seized a woman, and cut off her finger for a beginning of their usual torture. Champlain rushed to her defense. 
I came at once, he wrote, and reprimanded the chief, who was his old friend, Iroquois. Champlain was very angry. He said to Iroquois, This is not the act of a warrior to behave cruelly toward women who have no other defense but tears, and whom by reason of their weakness and helplessness we should treat with humanity. He told Iroquois that the torture of women would be judged as coming from a base and brutal disposition, and if any more of this cruelty followed, the French would not assist them in their war. Iroquois replied that the enemies did the same to them, but if it was displeasing to Champlain, nothing more would be done to the women. He promised to torture only the men. But that response was not the end of it. According to a later account by Jesuit father Paul Lejeune, another Algonquin warrior of the Morrison Island nation heard Champlain's words and was enraged by the interference of this meddlesome Frenchman. He turned defiantly on Champlain and said, See what I shall do since you speak of it. He seized an Iroquois infant who had been nursing at the breast of his mother, took it by the foot, and smashed its head against a rock. The French were appalled by the murder of this innocent baby and still more by the way that these proud spirits spoke to a captain who had arms in hand. The alliance between the French and the Indians threatened to fly apart in the middle of Iroquois. Back to me. Fortunately for the Enterprise, scouts returned with news that they had seen the Onondaga Fort, and that refocused the multicultural alliance on the task at hand. Champlain had a plan. He proposed that his arquebusiers remain hidden until the Onondaga warriors were baited out of the fort. Then the French could fire into their flanks from the concealed position, emulating the battlefield tactics rolled out at Ticonderoga. That would not work out. Now let's go to Fisher for the heart of the battle, which I cannot improve upon. Quote, At first contact with the enemy, the plan came apart. As his Indian allies came within sight of the fort, a small group of Onondaga warriors rushed out to fight them. Some of the allies raced forward in quest of captives. The operation dissolved into a chaos of small fights, and the Iroquois began to get the upper hand. Champlain watched with concern as more Indians from both sides joined the fight and the tide of battle turned against his allies. He called to his arquebusier and led them forward. They opened fire, and the Onondaga recoiled in shock. Champlain thought that many of them had never seen European soldiers armed with quote, thunder sticks. The Onondaga retreated into the fort with their dead and wounded. Champlain also fell back with wounded Indians whom he had rescued from the field. He was in a state of fury. To protect a few impetuous warriors, he had lost the vital element of tactical surprise that had worked so well against the Mohawk. He remembered that he used hard and unpleasant words and warned the Indian war chiefs that, if everything went according to caprice, evil alone would result to their loss and ruin. Champlain studied the Onondaga town, which was more a castle than a fort. It was surrounded by four massive palisades of heavy interlocked timbers 30 feet high. On the top were galleries or parapets protected by double timbers, that were proof against French musketry. The castle had an ample supply of water and a system of gutters and water spouts that could be used to put out fires along its wooden walls. 
Altogether, Champlain thought that the Onondaga fort was stronger than the towns of the Huron. Interjecting here, the Onondaga castle was obviously built to defend against attacks by other tribes, which gives you some sense of the ferocity of pre-European warfare in North America. New York, then as now, was not for wimps. Back to Fisher. Champlain invited his Indian allies to a council of war and recommended a new plan. Drawing on his experience of European siegecraft, he proposed that they construct a siege engine called a cavalier. This was a protected platform on stilts higher than the palisades with loopholes for firearms. Then he suggested that they build large shielded enclosures called mantelet and use them to approach the palisades and set the walls ablaze. It was agreed. With incredible speed, the Indians and the French built a big cavalier. 200 men pushed it forward within a pike's length, about 16 feet of the palisade. From its high platform, French arquebusiers began to fire into the town, loading their weapons with three or four balls at each discharge. They had an abundance of ammunition and they raked the interior of the crowded Onondaga fort for three hours, inflicting heavy losses on the defenders. Back to me. Under cover of the Mantelet, other Indians tried to set fire to the Palisades, but the wind turned against them and blew the fire away from the fort, and the Iroquois used their system of gutters to pour water on the flames. The attackers, in frustration, emerged from under the Mantelet and started shooting arrows, ineffectually at the defenders on the top. Champlain reported that arrows fell upon us like hail. The French fired back and inflicted heavy losses, but the Onondaga kept replacing the fallen. Then two of the three Huron chiefs were wounded, and several arrows struck Champlain in unprotected spots. One went into his leg and another hit his knee. He fell to the ground unable to stand. Despite his injuries, Champlain still believed victory was possible, and he urged the Huron forward, but they would have none of it. They fell back from the fort, carrying Champlain under protest. In a concession to him, the Huron agreed to wait around for a few days to see whether Etienne Brule and the Susquehannock arrived from the south. But after four or five days, the Indians took charge and organized the retreat to their canoes hidden in the woods many miles away. In contrast to their disorganized attack, Champlain was impressed with the discipline and the withdrawal. No wounded were left behind, for to do so would have meant death by ritual torture. The Huron fashioned backpack baskets of a sort that could hold a wounded man tightly bound so he couldn't move. The strongest Huron carried the wounded in shifts, displaying extraordinary strength and stamina. In this fashion, the Huron carried Champlain and the other debilitated warriors on their backs all the way up Interstate 81, close to Watertown, as it were. Champlain described the ordeal, quote, It caused the wounded great and extreme pain, Champlain later testified. I can say this indeed with truth from my own case, having been carried for several days because I was unable to stand, chiefly because of the arrow in my knee. Never did I find myself in such a hell 
as during this time, for the pain I suffered from the wound in my knee was nothing in comparison with what I endured tied and bound on the back of one of our Indians. This made me lose patience, and as soon as I was able to stand, I got out of this prison, or more accurately, this hell. Better, though, than being dismembered and skinned alive, which was the alternative for all the wounded. Historians have argued over whether the battle at Onondaga was a victory or defeat. Champlain thought it a defeat at the time because his plan had failed and the field was not won. Fisher parsed the historical debate over the centuries and concludes that it was actually a good example of success in limited war. The Onondaga, like the Mohawks, ceased their attacks on the allies of the French for the better part of 20 years a result that Champlain did not understand when he wrote his after-action account. There's an obvious loose end. What happened to Etienne Brulé and the Susquehannocks? According to the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, he and the 12 Hurons who accompanied him almost accomplished the mission, arriving two days after the attackers began their retreat. Quote, as always, when Brulé was involved, no precise report had been made of the route taken on his journey. However, historians are generally agreed that the party must have followed the Humber River to its mouth, where the city of Toronto is now situated, gone around the western end of Lake Ontario, then landed somewhere on the south shore, perhaps between the Niagara and Genesee rivers, pushing on after that towards Carantuan, the Susquehannock capital. The mission of the Hurons and Brulé did not prove successful. Although they succeeded in raising an army of Susquehannocks, it reached the meeting place agreed upon with Champlain two days late, at a time when the Huron army, already defeated by the Iroquois, not sure we agree with that, had abandoned the spot. After this reversal, Brulé returned with the Susquehannocks to Caratuan to continue his exploration. Carantuan was located near today's Waverly, New York, which sits on the New York-Pennsylvania border directly south of Ithaca. So Etienne and his warriors definitely went the long way around to avoid the lands of the Senecas. That was probably an excellent idea. There is a coda of sorts. When Champlain finally got back to Huronia, his allies reneged on their promise to return him to Quebec. He spent the next year in the region in a state of quasi-captivity. Champlain being Champlain, he put the time to good use, as usual. He walked the territory and wrote down detailed descriptions of the cultures of the tribes of the region. At one point, he intervened to prevent a war between two Algonquin tribes that were spoiling for a fight over, you'll guess it, the disposition of an Iroquois captive. We are now going to leave Champlain, at least for the time being. His accomplishments after 1616 would be in Canada, so I will only come back to him if my muse decides it is necessary to build the foundation of New France before taking on other French endeavors in the lands of today's United States. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write a nice review on Apple and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. 
To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love, and your support is very motivating. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.